Hello, and welcome to the special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Susan Deniker, an attorney with Steptoe & Johnson PLLC in West Virginia. Here on Employment Matters, we bring you updates from around the world as we dial in our local ELA lawyers. These great folks practice on the ground in jurisdictions around the globe, working daily to help their clients move through these difficult times. Today, we're chatting with a member in Georgia and a member in Southern Florida. I'm very excited that joining us on the program today are Henry Perlowski, partner at Arnold Golden Gregory LLP, and Holly Goodman, shareholder at Gunster. Today, Henry and Holly are gonna tackle an important topic that I know is on all of your minds return to work and mandatory vaccination policies. Welcome to the program, Holly, how are you today? Doing well, thanks, how are you, Susan? I'm well, and I'm so glad that you're joining us. Henry, we're also glad to have you on the program today, how are you? I'm great, thank you very much, Susan. Good to be here with you and Holly. Well, great, really great to have both of you. Let's jump into this because we have a lot to talk about and we've got some you know, hot off the press developments to talk to our listeners about today. So Holly, let's start with you. As we see evolving CDC guidance with regard to mask wearing in indoor and outdoor spaces and in discrepancies between vaccinated and unvaccinated folks, what are some of the COVID-19 restrictions that employers still should be thinking about as employees continue to come back to the workplace? Thanks, Susan. That's a, that's a great question and something that I know a lot of employers have been grappling with in the past few weeks since the CDC did suddenly change its guidance to advised that fully vaccinated individuals could be inside without their masks on. One thing that I think that's really important to still keep in mind is that first off, that CDC guidance also included a carve out where it specifically said, unless you have an employer or other policy that requires masks. So the CDC is throwing employers a bone from that perspective, but they're also still working in concert with OSHA. Employers should always be mindful of the general duty requirement under OSHA that they are required to provide a safe workplace for their employees. And OSHA has not yet updated its protecting workers guidance on mitigating and preventing the spread of COVID-19. OSHA has noted that they're aware of the most recent CDC guidance and that they are reevaluating their guidance to employers. But as of right now, employers should still be taking a look at OSHA's guidance as they're reopening their offices, especially if they haven't had employees in their office space over the last year. They should be looking at environmental factors, changes they should be making. OSHA gives some great guidance on that, especially in certain areas. OSHA has identified industry-specific guidelines as well. So any employer in one of those industries should be looking at those OSHA guidances. And then, of course, the CDC still has recommendations for workplaces, especially for those that have been shut down for the last year, including things like making sure that your building hasn't developed mold since it's been closed to the public and making sure that it's ready to reopen and that any workplace where there's going to be employees has been adapted to try to reduce the spread. Holly, all of those are really excellent points. Let me transition to Henry for a minute. Henry, right before the holiday weekend, the EEOC dropped a little gift in terms of some updated guidance on its Q&A document with regard to pandemic-related issues, and it addressed something that many employers have been grappling with, whether to mandate vaccines for employees. Tell us a little bit about what the EEOC did in this guidance and what this means practically for our clients. 
Sure, Susan. Yeah, so last Friday, the EEOC gave what we would politely call the Friday afternoon surprise right in advance of the holiday weekend, where we have been expecting guidance from the EEOC on vaccination policies and incentives for months, literally, and we finally received it. And so what the EEOC has said is, as an employer, if you want to mandate a vaccination policy, you can for employees who are coming into the workplace. And it generally said that you can do so as long as you have processes in place to deal with accommodation requests, either on the basis of disability or for sincerely held religious beliefs, which I think that's something that probably practitioners in the space have expected that if the EEOC was going to bless mandatory vaccination policies, it was going to still have the outs for disability and sincerely held religious beliefs. It's interesting that the EEOC specifically said that it's blessing it for employees who are coming into the workplace. It did not say, nor did it prohibit, whether an employer could issue a blanket policy that it applied to the entire workforce, including employees who may predominantly telecommute. So there's still a bit of gray area there. It also gave a little bit of guidance on if you are considering exception requests on the basis of disability or sincerely held religious beliefs, factors that you should look at in the analysis. And the EEOC generally went, it didn't go so far as saying you should not be telling people that they're going to be fired unless they get vaccinated. You should be looking at all of these other potential accommodations short of telling somebody that there's no longer a place for them in your organization. It's curious to see how that may play out over time, because I think that's, that's a big question. I know clients who are more inclined to want to push a mandatory vaccination policy, that's the question they're asking. Okay, what happens if someone objects? What do we then do? And the EEOC has suggested you should be thinking about a lot of other things short of termination without saying what it actually thinks if an employer terminated someone. You're right, Henry. And I'll note that the guidance in that updated EEOC Q&A also notes that they're not reaching you know, state laws that could impact these mandatory vaccination requirements, which raises another gray area. Holly, I want to get you in on this discussion to talk about another portion of the guidance that we got from the EEOC before the holiday weekend, and that relates to another burning question. So if employers don't want to come out with the big stick of having mandatory vaccines, can they do it another way with the carrot and offer incentives to employees to get vaccinated? Yes, absolutely. I know that that's an issue that employers have really been hot on and was actually something that the businesses asked the EEOC to address many, many months ago. So I I know that a lot of my clients are grateful to see some sort of guidance from the EEOC on this subject matter. And the EEOC has now affirmatively stated that employers can offer incentives to employees to show proof of vaccination. So that without running afoul of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was always the concern, was this idea of incentives and whether that would create an issue under the ADA. So that is some level of relief. One thing that was really interesting that the EEOC has done here, though, 
is that they have drawn distinctions between vaccines that are offered by a third party and vaccines that are offered by the employer itself. So if the employer is the one that is offering the vaccine on site, either itself or through an agent, then if they are going to be offering an incentive to employees to get vaccinated, then they have to make sure that the amount of the incentive is not so great as to be seen as coercive because of the questions that an individual has to answer prior to getting the vaccine. Those questions could implicate a disability. And so the EEOC wants to be sure that employers are not coercing employees into giving them what is considered disability-related information in exchange for a vaccine. However, that requirement does not exist if an employer is simply saying, show me proof that you obtained a vaccine from a third party and the employer is not the one that is actually offering the vaccine itself. These issues are certainly complex. And, and Holly, you raise another issue with regard to the incentives where there's just not a black and white answer. One portion of the guidance that I did think provided some black and white definition on these subjects related to the confidentiality of some of this information. And Henry, could you speak to that? Sure. And what the EEOC very clearly said is that if you are an employer who's receiving information regarding vaccination status, that you should be keeping that information confidential. And, you know, that goes to, I know, certainly receiving inquiries over the past few months about even things like where you're trying to, in effect, give someone a vaccine badge. You know, now all of a sudden, if you receive that information and you're, in effect, easily labeling someone as being vaccinated versus non-vaccinated, are you now running afoul of that confidentiality requirement? You know, and that's something that I think the EEOC's guidance suggests that they don't want you to do that. That, to me, raises, you know, Holly, very spot on answered the question about incentives. One thing I thought that the EEOC guidance didn't really touch on directly is, if you're a client, what do you do if you want to say that, okay, only vaccinated employees, for example, are going to be allowed to travel to client sites? versus non-vaccinated employees, or based on customer, if you're customer facing, we're only going to let vaccinated employees have that direct contact versus non-vaccinated employees. Those aren't incentives. Those are, we're going to modify the job or maybe allow vaccinated people to do the full job and non-vaccinated people to do 80% of the job. That the EEOC didn't squarely touch on. And I know we've been getting a lot of those questions, which is, I want to place parameters on what people can or can't do based on vaccination status. I think that wasn't directly addressed in the Friday afternoon surprise. I agree with you, Henry. So Holly, jump in on that topic. What can employers do legally if they do want to distinguish between how they treat vaccinated versus non-vaccinated folks. I mean, the CDC guidance kind of suggests that if you're vaccinated, you don't need to wear masks indoors, right? But if you're not vaccinated, you shouldn't. So how do employers handle that when they have a mix of employees in the workplace, some of whom have been vaccinated and some of whom haven't? It's such a great question. It's something that a lot of my clients have been grappling with is this idea. They would like to be able to tell employees that if you're vaccinated, you can take off the mask. But the thing that we've been discussing with those same businesses is now the issue of the red badge. You're, you are signaling that anyone who is still wearing a mask is either unvaccinated or uncomfortable in the workplace, and it can out them. It can create employee relations issues. 
If the employer is not mandating vaccinations and is not checking vaccination status, now you've got the HR needs to be prepared for employees coming in and reporting others who might have taken off their masks who aren't vaccinated. And so employers have to really look at the big picture here. And so one thing that I have seen a number of companies doing that's kind of a middle of the road option is to send out anonymous voluntary surveys so that the employer is not the one that's learning whether or not someone specifically, whether or not that particular employee is vaccinated, but can get a feel for the workplace as a whole to be able to make determinations as to whether or not to loosen some of the mask mandates as a whole as a company, rather than on an individualized basis. Because if, for instance, a business knows that 90% of their office space is vaccinated and they've already put up plexiglass barriers and done social distancing in accordance with some of OSHA's guidelines, then that employer might feel more comfortable lifting some of the mask mandates without outing employees specifically as being vaccinated or non-vaccinated. That's a great point. Henry, do you want to jump in on that? So a related point is, I think that one of the things that we've been constantly talking with clients about is how you need to reinstill what your overall culture is in these discussions. Because rightly or wrongly, the mask issue specifically has become very political and can, has become very confrontational. Anybody who just listens to the news has heard about issued violence erupting as a result of people being asked or not asked to wear masks. And one of the things that we've been telling clients or recommending is, look, if I'm going into your house, for example, and you want me to take my shoes off, as a polite person, I take my shoes off if you want me to do that before I go into your house. And so likewise, if you're in a work setting and you're going into someone's office and they want you to wear a mask, you're to do that. Like, so we've been having those sort of cultural conversations with our client about resetting people's behavioral expectations to try to minimize the conflict that is going to probably necessarily result from any distinctions between what people who are and are not vaccinated can do in the workplace. Because any distinction is going to effectively publicize who is or who is not vaccinated. That's just the reality of it. Well, along those lines, let me ask this. What about employers who believe that they have segments of their workforce that are at higher risk for COVID transmission? We've seen that in different industries where you have some folks maybe in manufacturing where they're close together, and you can compare that to an office setting where maybe people are in individual offices, they can close doors, it's just easier to be physically distanced. Holly, is there a concern with regard to having different requirements, for instance, a, a mandatory vaccine requirement for employees that maybe can't be physically distanced versus those that can. Does that create some type of discrimination or disparate treatment concern? As long as the differences are job-related and consistent with business necessity and are not based on any kind of protected characteristic, then an employer can craft policies that really get to those employees whose job duties are the ones that put them at higher risk. Any employer that is considering carving out certain positions should certainly take a look, take a step back and take a look to make sure that they're not inadvertently identifying a job position that happens to be occupied by all members of a protected class or could arguably be targeting members of a protected class. But if the job itself requires an employee to engage in activities that would otherwise put them at higher risk, then certainly there's nothing stopping an employer from having a policy that really just targets those positions. Because one thing that the EEOC did do in this most recent Friday surprise guidance 
is they noted that a vaccination requirement may be job related and consistent with business necessity as a safety related standard. And so, for instance, one thing Henry mentioned earlier is this idea of what about people who are traveling? Well, if you have employees who travel internationally, some countries are still requiring quarantine upon entry. Some countries have started accepting visitors who have been fully vaccinated without requiring quarantine. So there might be a business reason why an employer might say, our employees who travel internationally will need to be vaccinated, but our employees who work in an office space where we've put into place COVID protocols might not need to have that same requirement. So it's not an all or nothing decision. Employers can make those calls based upon specific job duties, provided that they're doing so in a non-discriminatory manner. So let's switch gears here for a minute and talk about getting folks back to work. We've talked a little bit about the rules for folks once they're back to work, but let's face it, we saw record numbers of employees telecommute or work remotely in the last year. I was one of those people that couldn't wait to get back into the office, but we're seeing a lot of studies that say that I might be in the minority with regard to that. A lot of folks have gotten comfortable in their yoga pants and sitting at home working. And candidly, the technology has allowed folks to do that successfully at a level where we haven't seen before. So what do employers do, right, with folks that they want to come back to work, but they may not be ready, the employees may not be ready to come back to work. Henry, what's a good way for employers to start looking at that and making decisions about bringing folks back to work who have been telecommuting during the pandemic? So I think there's two aspects of it. One is cultural. What do you want to promote? And what does your particular business need? I mean, there are going to be businesses where being in person is a much more important aspect of the job than others. I mean, there are other businesses where if you have a computer and a phone, you can do your job from anywhere. And so it becomes an employee retention issue. It becomes a morale issue. It becomes how much of a top-down command organization do you want to be? But then there's the legal aspect of it, which is and the EEOC is certainly with Friday's guidance as, as clear as it could be that it is expecting employers to consider, continue considering telecommuting as a reasonable accommodation for potential either religious or disability requests. It's basically saying, again, the guidance was applicable to people who are in the workplace. So employers are going to have a difficult time, even if they're in a business, like say you're running a nursing home where you have a lot of resident contact or you're serving food. Many jobs have direct contact, but other jobs, say you're in the accounting department, you know, the back office administrative, they're not going to have that kind of contact. So having a one size fits all policy is going to be difficult. And you both either culturally and or legally should be considering whether the lessons that we've learned over the past 15 plus months, you're going to still continue those for a period going forward and how you're going to set your expectations and how you're going to be sure that people who are telecommuting are reporting all of their hours worked and you're capturing time correctly and you're safeguarding your intellectual property. You need to just keep on considering that and candidly, what may be right in June of 2021 may not be right in December of 2021. You just need to continue to think about it as you learn more about your workforce. Henry, you raised the issue of reasonable accommodation. Do you think that it's a higher bar now to argue that for an employer to claim that remote work isn't a reasonable accommodation when 
that's something that they have done for employees for the last 12 to 14 months? Susan, that's a great question. And I always look at things as how my stubborn Italian mother looks at it. And if you were able to do it for the past 15 months, my stubborn Italian mother is going to think that you could continue to do it going forward, that that's just the way it is. And I think it's hard to basically tell somebody who's been doing the job, absent some performance documentation that indicates they haven't been, that all of a sudden they can't do it. That's going to be a challenging argument to make if all of a sudden you want to do a hard 180. I really like that, the stubborn Italian mother standard. I think that's a new legal standard that is appropriate and applicable. So Holly, let's talk about this on a practical level. I mean, we're talking about reasonable accommodation. Henry's referring to the interactive process, which is important. And those are legal terms that we throw around as lawyers, but practically speaking, when our clients get somebody who walks into the office or sends an email and says, I want to continue to have remote work as an accommodation. How do employers kind of tackle that from the first step and how do they engage in that process with the employee? Certainly. And I think, Susan, where a lot of my clients at least have been seeing that conversation start is in, okay, employer says you're, we're starting to bring people back. You're coming back into the office on X date. And the employee starts by saying, I'm really concerned about coming back or I'm not comfortable coming back. And the conversations that I've been encouraging clients to have, just like Henry's been talking about, are these cultural-based conversations. Have an actual human compassionate conversation with your employee. Ask what concerns you. Find out whether it's because they have a disability, which is going to trigger the ADA, and now we need to ask for documentation if that's our policy of what the nature and severity is and what the limitations are or seeing whether there's other accommodations we can make, or maybe it's just someone is uncomfortable coming back. They're scared. A lot of people are still uncertain about coming back out into the public. They don't know how many of their colleagues might be vaccinated. They're concerned about being in large groups again. And if that's really the concern that's being raised, then I think that's an opportunity for the company to really hammer home for their employees how much they care about their staff, the steps that they've taken to try to protect their employees, by putting into place new protocols or by changing the physical office environment and really being able to have those discussions to see whether that's going to alleviate any concerns. But to the extent that somebody does raise their own physical or mental disability as a reason why they're not comfortable coming back in, that's when the employer is going to have to engage in that interactive process, just like we did before COVID, just like you would any time an employee came to you and said that they had to make any other change in their work environment and really dig deep into what that employee's essential job functions are. Because I, I agree with Henry and his Italian mother that if it's been working for the last 15 months, a lot of employees are going to think, well, why can't I keep doing this? And for better or for worse, a lot of companies in trying to keep spirits high have really been emphasizing how well we've managed to come through this and how proud they are of their employees. And the consequence of that is, is that they haven't been emphasizing that maybe we're not as productive as we were pre-pandemic when everyone was in the office. And so if an employer is going to try to bring people back in and deny remote work as an accommodation, they really need to be looking at what alternatives there are and whether that means giving someone their own office space, even though they used to be in an open environment, changing work hours, alternating the weeks that employees come in and out. Those are all changes and alternatives that might be available other than a remote work arrangement, but remote work is certainly something that needs to stay on the table and in the mix for consideration. And going to what Holly said, telecommuting doesn't mean the job requirements are any different. 
So the job requirements in terms of availability, the job requirements in terms of performance, and hopefully companies have been better managing a remote workforce because of the lessons we've learned over the past 15 months than maybe we were before COVID hit. So it's part of like going back to the conversation with the employee. If you want to be able to continue to work, understand that the performance expectations are the same as if you were in the office. And if those performance expectations slip, what we may expect of you, including where you may be working, may change. And so employers shouldn't be afraid of those conversations either. Henry and Holly, all really practical and excellent advice. Thank you for your insight today, especially as we continue to help our clients work through these complicated and evolving issues. Henry and Holly, thanks so much for taking the time to discuss these issues with us today. And thanks for joining the program. If you'd like to connect with Henry, Holly, or any of our lawyers around the world, please search for them on the ELA website at ela.law. Also visit the website to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers and on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Susan Deniker. Thanks so much for listening today.